Hello and welcome to episode one of My Lost Order podcast series two. We are back and we are ready to find out a bit more about the people who make the culture industry what it is. I am delighted to say that our first guest for series two is the one and only Davina DeCampo. We're going to be talking to Davina about how they started out in the drag industry, that little show called RuPaul's Drag Race, Pride, how we can channel the spirit of pride at home and of course Davina will be telling us what they've picked as their favourite place, drink, snack and jukebox song. So without further ado, let's get started with episode one of My Last Order podcast series two. we are still doing this socially distant so my audio quality might not be that fab but the content will be because we are joined by the lovely Davina DeCampo. Hello! Davina thank you for being my first guest for series two of the podcast. How have you been these past few weeks? You know what it's awful but actually I've been fine. <laughs> I uh, I was sick right at the beginning. So the week before lockdown, so I was in lockdown for like a week extra to everybody else because um, I came home from touring and I had the flu. I'm 90% certain that it was the flu rather than COVID because I think I had COVID uh, way back in early December, late November um, when we were on the Drag Race tour because I was sick as a dog. I was so poorly then. Um, and had like all the sort of symptoms that they, you know, talking about the dry cough, the not being able to taste things properly, um, like, you know, the smell, all of those things. So, and I was so sick the whole time we were doing the tour um, that, I mean, when I came back from Belfast and I was ill, I was like, well, this is, I mean, this is just regular flu isn't you know something really serious so apart from that though I've been absolutely fine and I've been super super busy because I've not been able to say no to anything (laughs) you know because I've not been able to go I'm really sorry but I'm on a train for five hours today so I can't I can't speak to you because the line will be rubbish or whatever you know so I've, I've been doing loads of interviews um loads of podcasts like this fantastic podcast and loads of stuff like that and I you know so I've earned absolutely zero money, but I've been very busy. (laughs) I suppose it has been hard, but you and others have proven that drag isn't something that people need to witness physically in a room. It can be done online. It can still make people happy and allow people to explore their creativity. As you featured in the first ever digital drag fest a few months ago, and what was that experience like for you doing that? Um, the the digital drag fest itself was great uh, because I sort of arranged my shows so that they were interactive. What I found through lockdown is that the shows I enjoy more are the ones where um, the audience are participating in what's actually happening, uh, which had always been like a big part of my shows anyway you know I want everybody to sing or dance or we're gonna you know we're gonna do something something's gonna happen and we're all gonna work together to make a show um 
Whereas I'd been asked to do a, a couple of other shows which had been like a set and there hadn't been any interaction with the audience per se. So there hadn't been like any, you know, you couldn't see the comment box or, you know, nobody could join in in any, any sort of meaningful way. Um, and I just found those to be really stale. <laughs> just so boring. <laughs> God, I mean, it's like, because you, you can't see what they're thinking or saying. So essentially, you're just sat in a, a room by yourself singing at a screen, which for me, you know, the not knowing whether anybody's there or not just doesn't work for me at all. So the Digital Drag Fest particularly uh, was great because you could see all the comments happening in real time. So uh, I sort of set it up like a jukebox. So I have 20 different tracks and I say, right, what number are we going to pick now, guys? And off they go, you know, and they're all firing six, eight, 22, you know, whatever. Um, and then we kind of whittle it down and, uh, and I don't know what the tracks are and neither do they. So <clears throat> it's all just a big guess, you know, which is again, part of the fun. Well, it, so it sounds like it was a fun thing to be part of, which I think at the moment is all that matters, just trying to make people have, have fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I keep saying this, like I'm so incredibly grateful to have been born at this point in history rather than like 100 or 200 years ago where A, medical knowledge was negligent, if not, you know, non-existent. And then B, we have, you know, so many resources which we can draw on for inspiration for entertainment for communication and there just was none of that you know like if you think about 1918 where are you going to get your news from well there's no tv the only place is a newspaper and again medical knowledge is still really kind of negligent at that point better than it had been earlier than that but still nothing compared to what we've got today um and and you know what they had in 1918 was you know it killed you within two three days you caught it and you bled to death in your lungs like an incredibly painful death um whereas you know thankfully this this has been a, a very different while it's killed lots of people and it's horrific but it has been a very different situation um and a lot of that is down to you know just pot luck that we've all been born at this point in history I guess really yeah definitely and now moving away from lockdown and the current situation we'll take a little trip back to where it all started for you and like the moment you felt like drag was the thing you wanted to do was drag and being part of the creative industry entertainment industry something you'd always wanted to do oh absolutely uh, like drag not as much as performing um I was like the kid who was in every choir, uh, every school show. Uh, I was singing in church. I was uh, performing in choirs all over the place, doing Amdram productions in dance school. So I was, you know, I was always interested in the sort of uh, performance side of the creative arts, um, but drag not so much. Um, my experience of drag had been, uh, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, drag was very different. You know, it was real rough and ready. Most of the people out working were rough as old boots. Like we had, 
this one of the drag queens that worked in Huddersfield for quite a while. Um, I mean, she's probably still working, to be honest. So I won't name her. Uh, but she's just a builder in a dress with a bad wig on and some budgie blue eyeshadow, you know. And and that was my experience of drag queens, was that they were just a bit naff. You know, they were just a bit rubbish. It was a bit seedy. Um, there wasn't any particular skill happening or, you know, it wasn't, none of that sort of was elevated. It was all just real base. I've got a sequin dress and a blonde curly wig and I'm standing in a DJ box telling people, now drinks on the dance floor. Um, so drag was absolutely not the, the sort of deal for me. Um, I was, my intention as a sort of 17, 18 year old was that I was, I was gonna do musical theater. That was, that was my hope, they, those were my kind of dreams. Um, somehow I decided that I wanted to go to Manchester Metropolitan, which was a good job because it was the only one out of all of my UCAS applications that accepted me. <laughs> I had applied to like um, Bretton Hall. So I'd applied to Bretton Hall and I'd applied to Rose Bruford and a couple of others. And um, all of the courses that I applied for um, either weren't running that year so they just decided that they weren't going to run them. Or like with uh, Rose Bruford, they take in such a tiny cohort um, that during the audition process, which, you know, I'm going to put my hands up and say I wasn't very good. Um, I was out within, I think, the first 10 minutes of an audition, which I, I do have a problem with those auditions specifically for um, universities, you know, you're paying for an education, but you have to pay to audition. And the first rule in performing arts is if you're having to pay for an audition, don't go to it. You know, that is the first rule. If somebody is saying, okay, come and audition for me, it'll cost you 40 pounds, but then you've got all of these opportunities, don't go to it because it's a scam. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about uh, those auditions, you know, for institutions like Rose Bruford, I'm calling you out, guys. <laughs> if I'm having to, if I'm having to pay for it, then it's a scam. Yeah, and I suppose that it it sort of stops some students who can't afford to pay for like a an audition. It's stopping them, especially like something that's quite creative, where yeah. money shouldn't be the be all and end all. But it, it still is, and a lot of students can't afford to take a risk of going to like at university or dance schools because it's it's a big risk for people who don't have a lot of money absolutely I mean I was really lucky in that I had a little part-time job and I was able to you know so I I could do that um but if I'd had to pay for a hotel and then travel and I couldn't have done it you know so I traveled down on a coach which was cheap because it's a coach um the audition was like 25 30 quid something like that but if I'd had to pay for um, like my travel from a, a hotel and a hotel, you know, a hotel in Greenwich is expensive. I, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But because I had a friend in London who said, oh, don't worry, I don't work until the night time. So I can you can stop at mine and then I can drive you to the audition. No problem. So, you know, for me, it was OK. But for lots of other people, I think it would have been prohibitive. Um, and that, again, is one of the things, you know, you're you're asking me to travel down to be ready for an audition and then you're giving me 10 minutes of time having paid for this audition I, I think that's a scam I think I don't 
I don't think that that is a a um, a justifiable or an honest way to run uh, uh, an intake process. I think it's shit. <laughs> so screw you, Rose Bruford. Screw you. <laughs> also, you know, I'm not bitter that I didn't get in, but just a bit, bit bitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And like you mentioned that like you had to travel to London and stuff like that and you come from Brighouse, which whenever I see that sign from going to like on the motorway or summer and I see Brighouse, I just think of you seeing it. Brighouse! Exactly, yeah. You see, I mean, Brighouse was already internationally renowned for all kinds of different things. It's brass band, Brighouse and Rastrick brass band. And then of course, Embracer from Brighouse as well, but they went to a Brighouse High rather than Rastrick, which is where I went. So, you know, we, uh, we don't speak to each other. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's Brighouse is one of those places that kind of because of where it sits, I think, in the country, it it uh, it hits way above its its strength. You know what I mean? It's a, a big hitter for such a tiny little place. Like you moved to Manchester and Manchester, you've said, is like a second home to you. How did you find Manchester's drag scene when you first came here and you first started? Yeah, I mean, like I didn't start in Manchester. I started in Stoke-on-Trent um, and I spent sort of seven, eight years working in and around Stoke, um, doing bits of drag, being absolutely horrible for the first years because I was so bad. Oh, just tragic. And then I had an opportunity where I went to Ibiza and I did two seasons out there. And the boy that I worked with out there, um, Neil, who his drag name is Uma God. Um, he is just so talented at makeup. Um, you know, he has a very handsome masculine face, but would turn himself into this gloriously glamorous creature from makeup that, you know, was very, very cheap. We're not talking about, you know, this is not a MAC cosmetics. This is... <laughs> This is real old school theatrical uh, and then like pound shop eyeshadows. So uh, he was just really, really skilled at how he applied makeup. And I learned a lot about it from him. So then I went back to Stoke, did another sort of four years ish there um, and kept developing and, and changing. Then when we moved to Manchester, um, Stoke hadn't been the most kind of welcoming place. Um, some of that is because, you know, in a small scene, uh, the queens who are established don't want anybody else to get a foothold in there um, because, you know, there's only so many jobs and they don't want to give theirs up. And that's fine. You know, that's how it is. But, you know, I'm still working and they're not. Um, <laughs> so then when we moved to Manchester, it was a totally different vibe. You know, I'd, um, I'd experienced other cities. Uh, and again, they've been quite similar to Stoke. You know, the old guard were really established and just kind of refusing to allow anybody newer in um, for fear of losing their job. I think mainly because they just weren't that confident in their own skills. Um, whereas Manchester, completely different kettle of fish. People couldn't have been more welcoming, couldn't have been more friendly and helpful. And, you know, the drag queens particularly. Um, I think some of that was because as soon as we got there, I made a real conscious effort to say hello to everybody, go and check out where everybody worked, what it was that they did. Um, 
which is important. You know, that's as a, a new queen on on the block, you you have to do the groundwork and and be nice. You know, if you go in and you're snotty and horrible with people, they'll be snotty and horrible back. So you you kind of have to put your best foot forwards and that, I did that very much but then you know they still could have been vile and horrible but they weren't they were lovely um and and I will be forever so grateful to all of the queens who really helped me and were were kind um because I hadn't really experienced that you know in the in the drag scene I hadn't experienced other queens really supporting each other it'd been my experience up until that point had been quite catty, really, to be honest. Whereas Manchester, like everybody's rough, we're all a bit common, uh, and it's about you know what what you do on stage is it good or not? That's kind of how you get judged, I think, in Manchester about what you do, rather than you know oh you're a queen and you're trying to get in on my turf. You know, it's that's that's been my experience of Manchester anyway. And do you think between then and now the drag scene has changed? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when did I arrive in Manchester? I think maybe it's seven years ago I arrived in Manchester. And some of the changes are because of Drag Race. You know, its influence has been uh, incalculable on uh, the younger queens particularly, um, and also on the audiences. You know, you find now that there are just more young women coming out, which is great. You know, it's opened up drag to a much different uh, audience to what we were, were having before, you know, because majority audiences um, had been, well, men, really. It was just men, men who were sort of 30 and over were your main cabaret audience while the kids were out having a fag. <laughs> Whereas now uh, there's lots more uh, young people in the room and lots more women, particularly, you know, so it had been kind of 90% of the gigs that I'd done were 90% men, whereas now it's really shifted. And in some instances, it's it's closer to 70% women and 30% men, uh, which I mean, I'm all, all for, as long as you turn up and you're having a good time. <laughs> Don't care who you are. <laughs> and you are someone who is so talented and has such a positive outlook on life. And you've done so much before Drag Race was even a thought. Like you've been on The Voice, all together now. But one thing I think sums you up as a person that you are is when you took part in the Drag Queen Story Time, which for people who don't know is part of Superbia, which is Manchester Pride's year-round calendar. Like They don't just do things uh, bank holiday in August. It's a year-round thing. And I've always seen you as not just an excellent performer, but also an educator, a great teacher. And I think Drag Queen Storytime was not only a session for like children to learn more about LGBTQ plus community, but also a safe space for them as well, where like nobody was judged, everyone could feel welcome. And um, why do you think events like that are so important to children? I think actually for exactly what you've just said, you know, a lot of bullying and uh, problems like that in schools come from just a lack of exposure. You know, so if kids don't know about something, if they've never seen it, they've never experienced it, then it's strange to them. And what what is the natural reaction to something that is strange is to mock it 
because I don't know what this is, so I'm going to make fun of it. You know, that, and it's a very human instinct. So just by having a drag queen sat in front of you, reading a book about tw tweeting like an owl, and, and everybody joining in, you know, suddenly then those kids are like, oh, well, this was fun. And that's that's what it, it is. You know, lots of people have this misconception. So it's very much for me that thing about giving people different experiences. Um, and for kids, particularly, if you give those them those experiences and you allow them to see that there are multiple ways of living, living their life, you know, so like at school, we went to the Hindu and Sikh temples and we went to a mosque and we also went to a church. You know, so I was very fortunate that the school I went to was quite diverse. It wasn't as diverse as it could have been, but it was quite diverse. So there were lots of black kids, lots of Asian kids. And it meant that we, as a, as a school, they were very kind of clued up on that. And so we would go and see these other places and how these other people live and, you know, what it is that that they do in their everyday lives. So it wasn't weird. So then you you kind of stop that, that phase of, oh, this is weird, so I'm going to bully you for it. You know, they worked really hard to to uh, make things so that they weren't weird. And that's my whole ethos with all of this is, if it's not weird, then it's not a problem for kids. So, you know, talk about it, show them. It's that thing that goes around every once in a while, you know, about how uh, my kids asked about, mummy, why has Gavin got two daddies? Well, sometimes that's what happens. You know, sometimes two men fall in love and, and they adopted baby and, oh, okay, great. Can I have a cookie now? You know, it's not a big deal for kids. It really isn't. It's adults that perpetuate these problems and place them on top of their kids. And, and we have to be aware of, you know, who is pushing those narratives and trying to make society like that, less accepting, less open um, and less kind, essentially. Definitely. And now we come on to the part that some people might recognise you from, uh, that little show called RuPaul's Drag Race UK. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't remember it. What an amazing thing to be part of. The first series of a show that so many millions of people enjoy. They live and breathe for it. They've been able to do things for themselves because of the show. And what was it about the show that made you want to apply to be on it? Um, in terms of where I was in my career, you know, what was the next logical step? Um, and that was it. So I had applied for the American one. Uh, I don't have a visa, so I probably wouldn't have been able to get on anyway. But um, I had applied for it for season 12 because I thought, well, you know, where do I do where do I go from here? And the only the only sort of logical conclusion is what's the next biggest platform? And and it, it is Drag Race. Um, and I oh, the dog's having a good in here, <laughs> barking away. Um, and so I, you know, I was looking at it partly as a business thing. And then also as um, up until then, all, all the audiences that I'd been performing in front of had just seen the kind of tits and teeth side. They'd not seen the human side behind drag. And that was, um, that was one of the things that I went on there to, uh, to really show you know, that drag queens aren't just machines and it's all tits and teeth and ha ha ha, hoo, 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 hee, hee, hee. you know, it's not all just that. 
um, there's also people behind there who have stories and it's, you know, and, and are complex, complex uh, individuals. Um, you know, because one of the things with Drag Race is that it, it creates a platform for some girls and people look at them as role models and quite often drag queens are really bad role models. <laughs> so I'm very aware of that as well. Um, so I, really the show for me was about showing that I'm a human as well as, you know, so I can do all this performing stuff and we can do all the comedy and the jokes and, oh, flash me done sorry about that. Whoops, go wash out your eyes. Um, but then I'm also a human backstage, you know, that, and that for me, it's the backstage, which is the kind of the, the most interesting side of drag anyway. You know, it's the creation um, process behind everything. That's what I find the most interesting. And I can't believe that it's been like a year since as viewers, we found out who was going to be on the first series. And I think the show made a lot of people aware of the amazing queens that we've got on our doorstep because we had like the US queens come and do tours here, they do shows here. But then I think a lot of people didn't realise that there's a lot of talent on our doorstep that we can go and watch. And I remember Manchester Pride in the parade all of a sudden there were these massive legs walking down the street and everyone was just going crazy <laughs> and you and all the other queens followed behind on a float how did it feel being part of that team and knowing that people will always remember you as being one of the the first queens on the show yeah i um like pride itself was amazing i've like i said i've been in manchester for uh five six seven years something like that so every every year that we had kiki i i did the parade um so there was something i think for me there was something kind of extra special about us launching in manchester um because this had been my kind of adopted hometown um so having been doing the parade for what feels like forever um to then be put up as, you know, here's, here's part of Manchester. And, and it was just, everyone was so welcoming. Um, and it, it definitely, it felt, it just felt a bit elevated, you know? Um, Cause I think there is, there is an issue with some of the bigger prides that they uh, often ignore the local talent. Um, they're so kind of wrapped up in, uh, we want Kylie or we want this person or we want that person that they they don't give the local talent the space that they deserve you know and Manchester has such an enormous wealth of talent I mean there really are some absolutely world-class acts in Manchester um, and I, I just don't think that they're always given the credit that they deserve um, and and so it felt kind of like a validation in a way you know being on that that float uh, in that part of the parade you know it felt uh yeah validating that finally you're being recognized for um the work and the talent and all of that stuff you know there were so many like iconic episodes in the first series one of my favorites was the posh on a penny episode which you won and the, the outfit that you created 
I mean, I, honestly, I remember watching it and just being like, oh, maybe I can go and do that. And it looks like even it even inspired um, the Great British Sewing Bee. <laughs> I mean, I do wonder. I do wonder whether one of the runners or the producers on Drag Race also worked because it is a bit of a, a coincidence. Just a bit. I remember seeing it and I thought... That's definitely what Davina did. And as viewers, we see, what, 50 an hour of an episode. And I know, because I have made my own clothes in the past, that it doesn't take uh, 50 minutes to make an outfit like that. And what was it like in regards to planning outfits, making clothes, and the things that we couldn't see on screen? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely got given... Uh, more time than they did on the sewing bee because they had 90 minutes. There's no way I could have made what I made in 90 minutes. Not a cat in hell's chance. I mean, I think it took me 90 minutes to cut the damn thing out. So, um, you know, what they did in 90 minutes, all I can do is praise that and say, my gosh, that's incredible. Um, we we had, a, I, would, I would say like a full day and a morning um, to get our stuff done. Um, but obviously for some people that wasn't quite long enough. Because <laughs> they just made crap. <laughs> um, yeah, so in terms of what you don't, you know, there's tons that you don't see because they film all day, every day. Um, and we're in from like eight o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. That It's long days. Um, and they're filming everything. So there's tons and tons and tons that you don't see, but that's TV, that's how TV works. There's always, you know, massive, massive amounts that gets filmed and then it never gets used because the angle's not quite right or the focus isn't quite right or the sound quality didn't work on that bit, you know. So it's, I, I would hate to be an editor because trying to patch everything together so that it makes sense would just be like the most difficult thing. Um, so I have enormous respect for everybody who works on any TV show, you know, backstage doing that stuff because um, have through lockdown, <laughs> we all, every drag queen I know has had to become their own editor and producer and filmer and, you know, and so we've all kind of looked at it and gone, oh my God, this is so hard. This is such hard work. So it gives you a real newfound respect for uh, everything that those people do and, and how amazing a job they actually do. Yeah. And another like iconic episode, the girl group one, the Frock Destroyers. I mean, I can still hear your beautiful like fairy tale bird-like sound. I won't ask you to do it now <laughs> unless you want to. <laughs> I don't think I've got it in my voice at the minute, to be honest. But that song was massive it ended up in like the uk charts people were learning the choreography did you imagine when you did that episode that it would end up being as successful as what it were no i mean whenever you make anything you don't know whether it'll chime with the the public or not you just you don't know um and it's i think it was just as with almost everything like that it was just that particular moment in time it just hit perfectly because you know you look at the charts there isn't anything that's like that at the moment and I remember listening to somebody else talking about music and she was saying like my ears just aren't hungry for that sound at the moment 
you know, there's so much of it. I'm just not, my ears don't, they're not looking for that. Um, whereas I think actually that is what people's ears were hungry for. Um, and I think they probably still are hungry for it because there still just isn't anything like that happening in the, in the UK charts. You know, we've got this enormous history of um, not comedy, but uh, camp music, you know, steps filled that gap. Uh, we had people like um, Chas and Dave doing rabbit, 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 you know, and there's always been stuff like that in the UK charts, and there just hasn't been anything like that for the past three or four years, I would say. So I think people are, are, are missing that part of, of the market in the, the music industry, particularly in the UK. So, you know, I think that's why it hit the way that it did, but absolutely no way did we know that it was going to. No way. You just don't. You, you can never tell. And you made it to the final of the show with all your repeater badges. And I imagine you got, you had a lot of memories and friends from the show, but what was it about the show that you loved being part of so much? Uh, I, for me, it was the ability to, um, to really show myself and open myself up to the public so that, you know, uh, people got to know me. And I think you really got to see every side of me. You know, I was a bitch. I said that the big girl's here with that wig. Uh, and I made fun of Cheryl and her 7,000 fingers on a dress. Um, but then I was also kind to people and I helped them. Um, and then I also stood up for myself, even though I'm racked with anxiety. Um, you know, so I, I, I feel like out of everybody, I really got to show every facet of, of my personality in that respect. Um, I just wish I'd been a bit more confident. <laughs> well, I thought it was amazing to see someone just like be honest with themselves because I bet a few people um, went on with this idea that they were going to show just one side of them. And realistically, people who are watching, they want to see the real person both on the stage and off the stage, which is why they watch it. If they just wanted to see this one side of a person, they'd just go and watch them perform. Whereas Drag Race, you got to see the backstage stuff, which was like my favourite part, seeing the process that people put into doing the makeup, the clothes, what they talk about, stuff like that, that you just wouldn't see if you just bought a ticket to a show. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there, there is a risk in that. And that's, you know, whenever anybody's talking to me about, oh, I'm thinking about playing for X Factor or Britain's Got Talent or whatever, um, you know, I always say to them, do it. But remember, it's a risk. You know, you have to understand what you are as a product, who you are as a person and how how this could affect you personally. And that, you know, it is a risk professionally because I know people who've been on shows um, and and it's been detrimental to their career because they've had the funny, you know, music put behind them or the way that they've been edited or um, that it, it has damaged them. Um, and that's, you know, again, that's one of the things that... Uh, I am so incredibly grateful for with Drag Race was that I don't feel like they did that with particularly with me. I don't feel like I got any kind of specific edit um, other than this is this is who 
is actually in front of the, you know, they were really honest. It was a really honest um, portrayal of how I behave. Yeah, definitely. And sadly, it looks like we might have to wait a bit longer for series two. But luckily, we have got Canada's Drag Race on iPlayer, which again is it's Canada's first series of the show if nobody's watched it yet. I imagine a lot of people have, but if you're listening and you've not watched it, it's on iPlayer. That's an exciting thing to watch at the moment. But would there be anything or anyone you'd like to see on series two of Drag Race UK? Like any challenges or special guests? I mean, this is like a constant question, usually about the drag queens that I would like to see. But in terms of special guests, I would really, what I would really like them to do, because it's called, you know, it's Drag Race UK. Um, I would really like them to use, um, as they have done with Canada's Drag Race, you know, so this week we saw one of their oldest drag queens. Um, I would like to see some of that on UK Drag Race. So people like Dusty O, who have had enormous international careers producing music um, and stuff like that. And people like um, Betty Legs Diamond, Kerry Dupree, who have been absolute giants in the cabaret world, like uh, Betty Legs Diamond particularly, you know, doing Funny Girls for since the dawn of time. And then also, you know, she's been one of the few drag acts to be um, on the Royal Variety Show. Um, and has done it multiple times. You know, she's not just done it once. She's been there multiple times. So I think it would be great to have people like that who are actually a massive part of um, the UK drag industry already um, on the show, either, you know, as like a judge or a mentor or um, something like that. Um, For me, that was the only thing that I would have really liked to have seen is a bit more of a kind of historical context and a nod to some of the people who are really out there doing it already, you know, they, and they've been doing it for a long time. People like um, Twiggy as well, who was a massive influence on, on me just because her looks are so incredible and she's always made everything herself. And, and there's so many amazing, amazing artists in the UK like if you could get Divine David on there and they had to do a you know what I would call artistic um high art uh drag challenge then he would be the the absolute ideal person for that because he's got such a, a long history of it and then people like Panty Bliss as well you know so if you're doing a section about politics you know you're doing an election year get Panty Bliss on get her to talk and mentor the girls because you know, she is best known for uh, this viral speech that she did about about politics. It went viral, not it was viral. <laughs> so if any of the producers are listening to this, then, you know, take note for series two. And you've released post Drag Race and all the touring that you've had to do. You released, decoded like an EP of songs last year. And what was the inspiration for releasing music, not just a, a single on its own, but like an EP? Um, so, like, I've always been making music. That's that's the thing. And music has been a, a massive part of my career anyway. You know, whether I've been singing other people's songs or writing songs for music, uh, singing songs for musicals or writing stuff for silly projects with um, Cherry and Ginger, who I work with a lot, with the Glitter Bombs. <laughs> Uh, you know, so whether it's been uh, writing stuff or 
just performing other people's stuff. It's been a massive, massive part of my journey in drag and just my life, really. You know, I've I've been singing since I was three. One of my earliest memories is the head teacher uh, pointing at me in reception in the middle of uh, assembly and saying, oh, we've got a Pavarotti with us today. Um, and, and I didn't know who Pavarotti was, but I was embarrassed that I was being pointed at. Uh, I mean, we were probably singing Morning is Broken and I was going, Morning has brought, you know, like crazy. Um, so it for me, it just, it made sense, especially the last sort of 10 years, I've been writing more music than than ever before. And um, and it just felt like this was the, the point to put some of those uh, ideas out into the world, you know? And you released Gratify, which is on the EP, which not only is such like an amazing song because you mix like on the video, there's voguing and then you're in opera. And the music video was something that was actually, part of it was shot in my hometown of Lee, which I don't think Lee has seen anything as exciting before. For people who don't know about Lee, it's quite an old industrial town. People are obsessed with rugby. What was it about like the setting of a mill or in like an industrial town that made you want to feature that in the video? I wanted... Um, because uh, Manchester has been such a, a massive part of my journey as a drag queen. You know, it was, um, it's where my diary exploded. You know, so we moved to Manchester and um, whereas in Stoke, I kind of cut my teeth and I learned the tools of my trade and I learned how to put a show together and the audience were really hard work. Uh, Manchester was the place where I, I felt like I arrived as a drag queen. You know, I, I turned up here and suddenly I had um, four or five dates every single week doing drag. Um, and I wanted uh, Gratify to be based in Manchester and Greater Manchester as much as possible um, because of uh, the kind of ethos of Manchester, you know, that it, people here work. You know, it's a, a big part of Manchester is about productivity and about making things happen and uh, doing things which um, please and help other people, which gratify itself is, is kind of about. Um, and also Manchester has this enormous melting pot of cultures, um, ethnicities, uh, race, you know, it's just this amazing, incredible, city which has so many different communities and cultures and artistic uh pro you know there's so much going on in the city but none of it seems to cause friction it all is really you know out of everywhere that i've lived um and you know i'm just down the road from bradford where there were some really serious race riots um a long time ago manchester isn't like that you know people just kind of get on with each other as much as possible. You know, people still fight with each other and stab and kill each other, but they do everywhere. Um, but it just feels like somewhere where uh, where all of these things can coexist and cohabit without um, without it being a kind of battleground. Um, and gratify musically is very much that. So I felt like placing as much of it in. Uh, 
in Manchester as possible would make sense. Um, so uh, the the bits outdoors that are shot in it are in in the bowl um, by the canal and all around the viaducts and all underneath the the rail railway and stuff like that. And then, like you said, the the next bit was in um, the mill, which Manchester is synonymous with with mills um, because it was you know the sort of hub of the textile industry in in the UK. And you've been releasing a podcast as well, Face Slay Talk, which is hosted by you and Ricky Williams from Gadio. How has that been, like, producing a podcast during this pandemic? Yeah, like, in a funny way, I think it's kind of easier. Because, like I said, people aren't on a train or doing a gig or they're here or they're there or, or they're just tired and would like some, you know, their own time. Um, so... People like me have had more time to devote to stuff like that. And it's been really, really good fun um, talking to other people in the uh, arts industry and kind of in and around uh, the drag scene, um, finding out what their sort of journey into the arts and drag and, you know, uh, and making producing content has been because what you find is that everybody's journey is so different everybody comes from such a different um angle to everybody else you know like mine is a kind of academic um route in in that my course itself was really academic there was a lot of writing and reading happening uh, throughout my degree which for some people they they don't even do that like they finish their GCSEs and then they jump straight into um, making work or or they go and work here and then they find a kind of find a, a different way in um so I, I always that's what I found most interesting about it is uh is other people's journeys into drag and the performing arts you just get to be a bit nosy as well just ask people anything and then they have to answer because it's being recorded <laughs> yeah I mean there have been a couple of instances where people have, have said something and you can see the kind of thread, you know, like as in an interview, you can see that if you give that thread a little tug, then there's something real juicy going to fall out of that little knapsack. So you're like, oh, can you elaborate? What I don't know what you mean by that. Can you explain a little bit more? And then you get the real like tea. Then you find it all out and you're like, ah! <laughs> and that's that's one of the things that I really like as well is um you know I am I am by nature quite nosy and I am genuinely interested in people I like hearing about their lives and what they do and their viewpoints um and so you know just having that opportunity to sit with people who you don't ordinarily get to sit with um and talk for an hour about their lives I find really interesting yeah, me too. And obviously, there's not been as big of a Pride celebration across the UK as there would have been normally. Um, there's still been marches and people protesting, raising awareness, which is really important. And Manchester is going to be doing like a virtual Pride. And I've been going to Manchester Pride every year since I was a young child. My mum said that she used to take me in my pram and... I've always felt really welcomed there. And Manchester Pride is obviously, like you said, it's an important thing for you too. How can we channel the spirit of Pride 
at home, which I imagine a lot of people will be doing now. Yeah, I think um, for me, the spirit of pride is uh, is equality. It is about um, seeing other people as they are um, and accepting that, you know, accepting it fully, you know. So it's not about saying, well, you know, that's OK. You can do that. Just don't come anywhere. Near. So I think a big part of pride for being at home is using your voice you know so pride the march itself is about using your voice and being there and being seen and being visible um and so whether it's through social media or writing to your mp or helping a support group or sending some money to uh, mermaids or a, another charity like that that works with uh, vulnerable youngsters then that's what we can do uh for pride this year so instead of spending 100 pounds on going out and getting wild and having a party this year maybe that money goes to uh, George House Trust or Albert Kennedy or the LGBT hotline you know give that money to an organization which is going to help other queer people um, I think that that's what most of us can do this year quite easily yeah definitely and I will pop some links with the podcast where people can get confidential help and also donate money because that's another thing like pride as much as people go out have a drink have a party it is a chance for charities to go out to people speak to them uh, they receive donations which they might struggle with this year so I will pop those links in as well but another thing is with Pride is that a lot of people will attend on their own because they feel like it's a safe space and a place where people can just be themselves and not be judged. And we are hearing like um, domestic abuse is on the rise because people are physically trapped in their homes. They, they're not allowed out because of lockdown, but also the LGBTQ plus community they are probably at, at risk as well because the it might not be safe for them to be themselves at home. And what advice would you give to them if they if they do feel like they are trapped, that they can't be themselves at home? Yeah, I've, I've been working with a group called Just Like Us that do a lot of work in schools. And um, the evidence that they found is that more young people, um, LGBT young people, uh, feel much more comfortable talking to their peers rather than their family about um, about their sexuality and gender, um, which means that during lockdown, they've been kind of missing that support network massively because, you know, while you might be able to call somebody and talk to them, uh, what if somebody overhears you? So again, you're less likely to actually, you know, vocalise that and not being able to see people uh, will make you feel more vulnerable um, and again, the stats for uh, for LGBT kids is um, if you're LGB, you're four times more likely to attempt suicide or think about it. And eight times if you're uh, part of the trans community and you're a young person. And that's, you know, a lot of that is because of a lack of education. Um, if, if you have a, a situation where, um, like in school, the school is supportive of their LGBT kids, then uh, the stats go down to exactly the same as uh, with hetero kids. Um, so, you know, that to me makes it very, very obvious that that work needs to happen in, in schools in order to create a safe environment for everybody. Um, but definitely it's been more difficult for LGBTQ kids 
um, during lockdown because they just don't have that support network and they're not always able to uh, talk to people at home. So what I would say to them is just remember it's not a race. Like coming out isn't a race. It's not about how quickly you do it. Um, it's up to you and it's up to you to kind of gauge where your family are with that stuff as well. You know, sometimes people's families will surprise them and, you know, they come out and they were expecting a bad reaction and actually their family have been great. Um, but that's not always the case. And, and it is up to you to kind of gauge that. But there are lots of um, groups out there, like Just Like Us, um, who can offer support and mermaids, who can offer support and help and guidance. And if, if what you're wanting to talk about with them, they're not able to uh, support you with, they will be able to uh, signpost you in the right direction, you know, to people who will be able to help. Um, so there is help out there and there are people to talk to and there are ways of, of getting through this. And it's not forever. That's the other thing. It's not forever, you know, um, which was one of the big things that I tried to remind myself all the time at school was that, you know, when it was really tough, when things at home were tough, when um, I was being bullied and all of that stuff, I just tried to keep remembering it's horrible right now, but it's not going to be forever. Um, and if you can look towards what it is that you want to do and achieve, then that will really, really help. Yeah, definitely. Especially now where people are thinking it might be the the be all and end all. It's like we think looking at A-level results, GCSE results, and a lot of young people are probably thinking, right, this is it now. This is, you know, sadly, a lot of them might think that this is like the, their life's over with because what they wanted to do, they can't do. But it's it's temporarily, it's not forever. That's the important thing to remember. Yeah, that's like these are important stepping stones. They are. Nobody's saying that they're not, but that's what they are. They're stepping stones. And it's just to take you on to the next place. And I mean, I tell this story about I had to get, I think I only had to get two C's to get into my university. I mean, which thankfully I managed. <laughs> Whoops. Um, but there was there were kids who were at my university who had got uh, an E and an F or an F and a U. And they hadn't got any other grades at all, you know, so um, they'd still managed to get themselves to a university and and a, and now are, are doing really, really well. You know, they're, they're having a great career. So it is a case of um, you've put all this work in and nobody's saying that it wasn't important, but it is not the be all and end all because... I mean, you're 18 for a start, like you have another potentially 80 years or more to go. So this is just the beginning. And now it's what you do with it that will really matter. And now we come on to the bit of the podcast that you have come here to do. Now we've got to know loads about you. It's the last order bit. So the first question is, you have to pick your all-time favourite place. So where would that be for you? Okay, so this sounds cheesy and ridiculous and oh, blah, blah, blah. But uh, my actual all-time favourite place is um, I my home, you know, where I actually live is in Gran Canaria. Um, and it was when we bought it, 
four, three years ago, four years ago, um, as soon as I walked through the door, that was it. I knew that this was where I was supposed to be. This is home. This is where I feel centered and um, most kind of relaxed and able to take on the world. Um, and so I, I would say my little funny little uh, Flintstones house in Gran Canaria. <laughs> And that's a lot, the Gran Canaria weather is a lot different to Manchester, so it's probably a nice place to just escape the rain. Yeah, it is. I mean, where we are, because it's all microclimates in Gran Canaria, so in the south it's really, really hot, but our house is in the north, um, and it's much more uh, changeable up there. So, you know, it can be flash flooding, torrential rain, and then it'll be three days later, it'll be really sunny and hot. You know, so it, re it really does range from 50 degrees, which is how hot it was when we moved in the first year. We had a couple of days where it was 50 degrees, which is crazy hot, um, all the way to uh, torrential rain. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit like Manchester then, sadly. You, you go away and it still rains. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I love that. I Because I, I spent two years out in Ibiza and the thing in Ibiza is it just doesn't rain for nearly six months. So when it finally does, you're like, oh, the rain, I love it. Um, and we still get more sun than we do rain in, in Gran Canaria. So, you know, I, it's, a, it's the most amazing place. I absolutely love it. And so you sat in your home in Gran Canaria and what would be your all time favorite drink that you'd transport over and have with you? Okay, so I, I have written down three. <laughs> which I know is naughty, but it's because it depends. It depends on the situation for me about what my kind of chosen drink would be. So like if I'm having like a chilled night, uh, then it would probably be ginger beer. I love a ginger beer, I, um, you know, crabbies, but there's also other brands available, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, or... I, I really love a cup of tea. What type of tea? I mean, I don't, I, I'm not even that fussy about what type of tea it is. <laughs> Just a nice cup of tea. Uh, yeah. I, and it's, I've always, you know, I just like tea. I like it really sweet though. And I'm trying to cut down on the sugar. So um, that's a tough one. But uh, that, or... If it's like the absolute end of the night and we're having a nightcap and everybody's got a bit wild and now, okay, it's, we're done. Um, I really love a white Russian. A white Russian with an ice cream floater in it. Oh, listen, you have not lived. You have not lived. That sounds interesting. I don't know if I'd like. I've, I've, I've had... Um... <laughs> I've had beer with ice cream float and I thought, mm. Oh, you didn't like it? No. Oh, oh, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? Horses for courses, everybody likes something different. <laughs> and what snack would you be having with one of those three drinks? Okay, so um, I eat so much, so much toast. I love it. I just... I don't know what it is about it, but I like toast, 
with a really good spread on it that's all like melted at oh, there's nothing like it, I don't think. So it would be toast. And that's part of how tea snuck in there. Because tea and toast, like if you've ever been out and then you come home and you have a cup of tea and toast, oh, it's the best. Absolutely the best. Me and my mate Sinead used to do it all the time. I mean, we didn't make the toast because her mummy used to get up and make us, oh gosh, honestly. I was thinking about this the other day about how nice her mum was to us because she'd get up at like half two in the morning and make us bacon sandwiches. Oh, crikey. I mean, what a woman, what a woman. <laughs> or she'd get up in the morning and clean up all the mess that we'd left. Oh, yeah. I know. We were terrible. She was so good to us. And she never once was like, you are terrible people. She just, hello, good morning. <laughs> and so you sat in Gran Canaria in your home. You've got a little, um, like a side trolley with some ginger beer, a cup of tea <laughs> with sugar and a white Russian with an ice cream float. You've got your toast with loads of melted butter on and you're feeling like you're having a bit of a party. So what would be your favourite jukebox song to put on? Uh, Lady Marmalade, the Little Kim, Pink, Maya and Christina. Like absolutely the best uh, super group ever. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Ariana and Jessie J, you know, theirs, theirs was good, Bang Bang was great. Still Lady Marmalade. The vocals, the energy, the the sass and the kind of competition in it. You know, they're all a bit competitive with each other in the track. I just love it. And the video tops it all off. And they won loads of awards for it. And, you know, it was just such high camp. And I think out of everybody, Christina Aguilera was like a goddess for me, particularly in that video, because this enormous hair, this insane makeup, the vocal, which is just brilliance, absolute brilliance. Um, you know, and so for me as a, a young queer kid, I was like, this is so amazing. <laughs> I remember um, because my mum had the CD of the soundtrack and um, I used to put it on in the kitchen and like dance on a chair, like make up some choreography. And I look back and I think, I've seen a four-year-old child try and do like a, a drop off a chair. <laughs> Quite interesting. Health and safety nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so you've created your perfect last order. So you're at home in Gran Canaria. You've got your your side trolley of ginger beer, a cup of tea with sugar, a white Russian with an ice cream float, loads of toast with melted butter, and in the background is Lady Marmalade by the Moulin Rouge girls playing loud. So that is your perfect last order over and done with. That sounds like an incredible night. It sounds perfect to me. This is Davina DeCampo and you've been listening to My Last Order podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and you can find me at the handle Divina DeCampo. That's D-I-V-I-N-A DeCampo everywhere. Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I always want to say MySpace, but not there. <laughs> and you can check out my EP Decoded on iTunes and all good streaming platforms and also 
I have my own podcast. Don't let her know. It's called Fierce Slay Talk. See you there. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to the first episode of Series 2. As always, we appreciate feedback. So don't forget to leave us a little comment on Apple Podcast. Share it with your friends. Tell your friends. Tell a stranger in the street who you talk to socially distant. I'm going to be leaving a few links to various charities that you can donate money to. You can find out loads of information. You can talk to people confidentially there. You can educate yourself. And thank you for listening to My Last Order podcast. <laughs>